Welcome to part two of Health System CIO's podcast interview with Aaron Meary, CIO at Dell Medical School at UT Health Austin. In this segment, Miri talks about the delicate approach organizations need to take with contact tracing initiatives, how the mental health hotline his team set up early in the pandemic has paid dividends, and why he believes shaping and molding telehealth tools needs to be a collaborative effort. As much as 80% of patient information is unstructured and stored outside of an EMR, Highland Healthcare helps complete the patient record by consolidating and connecting this unstructured content to core clinical systems. With a full suite of content services and enterprise imaging solutions, Highland gives clinicians a single view of all documents and medical images associated with the patient via the EMR, enabling more informed health decisions and improving patient outcomes. Highland Healthcare, see your whole patient. Visit highlandhealthcare.com to learn more. And you mentioned contact tracing. Can you talk a little bit more about that initiative? Absolutely. So um, it was interesting. We have some of the probably the brightest physician clinician researchers I've ever had a chance to work alongside. And I'm constantly in awe of them and learning. And so when COVID broke out, it was the beginning of March timeframe here in Austin. By about the second week of March, I got a phone call from one of our chiefs of family medicine telling me, hey, Aaron, we really need to do home monitoring for patients, being home temperature monitoring for folks that we suspect that have come through UT Health Austin that are positive or are awaiting a test result. Um, we need to see what their temperature is so that we can intervene quickly and that we can dispatch people proactively to them to keep them out of the ER. The thought process early days was if you can catch a temperature spike early, you may be able to intervene with various medications or, or whatnot before they potentially fall out of their house or present to the ER in really, really bad shape. So we partnered with a company out of Seattle to do exactly that. They had been doing uh, hypertension monitoring and they pivoted to COVID-19 monitoring because they already had a platform built for it. And it made a lot of sense. It was quick, it was easy. There was an iOS and Android app. Uh, there was a web app we developed shortly thereafter. We put out apps in Spanish, which were important to the city of Austin. But right on the heels of that, right? Not two weeks after we go live with home monitoring, well now it's end of March, beginning of April was like, man, we need to contact trace because these people we're sending home then are around their family or around their loved ones and yeah. we need to call who they've been around and who they've been around and so forth and so on, which is what contact tracing is. It's basically the lineage of who's been around you, who have you been in contact with and trying to get ahead of them so that you stem uh, the source of transmission, especially from inadvertent uh, exposure, someone's asymptomatic. Yeah. To the degree of it, we built a contact tracing system in partnership with that company to do exactly that which was great. So as we now took on the public health response in, in partnership with APH, uh, we were able to contact trace a large swath of the city of Austin and help incalculable numbers of people uh, to make sure that they were not getting infected inadvertently or other. Then comes the whole situation of, hey, Aaron, you guys have done such a great job with the city and you've done such a great job on the public health response and helping and assisting the hospitals and physician and practice component why don't we worry now about the students returning? So in June timeframe, we got the request from UT Austin to say, help us make sure that these students return to campus in the fall safely, successfully, and as many protocols as possible to prevent infection, which means contact tracing. Mm. 
number of data analysis that have to occur on the fly to say who's at risk, who's not. So we set up, I call it a version two of contact tracing with a completely revamped process of what we have learned with data analytics and algorithms of what we learned across the city of Boston, especially in terms of populations that are more predisposed to uh, being exposed to the virus and not. And so uh, it's been a wonderful example of teamwork and collaboration across all of UT Austin, not just Del Mar or UT Health Austin. And it's also been a phenomenal response by the physician community rallying together to make sure that not only are we taking care of the patients that need us and whatnot, but also our students and our student body, which typically on a, on a healthcare side of things, you don't see them unless you absolutely have to, right? In this case, it's more of a proactive, yeah. which is a good thing. And is there some sort of um, education or awareness component to this? Because in New Jersey, there's some statistics about people being unwilling to participate in any contact tracing because there's privacy concerns. But what can be done on the education front? Yeah, so a couple things. There's a term called health equity, which means that you recognize in terms of a technology stack that all sorts of people, all shapes, all sizes, all colors, all demographics, all everything will be potentially interacting with you in a didactic manner, in which case you need to walk them through what you're doing in a very transparent, safe manner that they feel comfortable with. In our case, it was having multilingual, multi-specialty, conforming to all ADA compliant type of messaging and communication to where even the contact tracers on the phone, which are speaking with patients or potential people that were exposed, are speaking them in their native languages, in their native formats, in manners that they feel comfortable with. This is why it was important, even though when we put out a smart app to the city, that we also had a web app because what we found was especially the socioeconomically challenged population, they had smartphones. They just didn't have access to the app store or the Google Play store but they could get to an internet browser, right, on free Wi-Fi. So as we interacted with, especially, you know, we call the disconnected population, those kinds of, of modalities and interacting with them in a manner that they are comfortable with was building a level of trust. So when we say, hey, Aaron, we need to know who you were around, assuming I went to the barber yesterday, saying, who was at the barbershop with you? Who did you see next to you? You know, in order to ask those questions and not be invasive, folks have to feel a sense of comfort that you really do have their back. Yeah. And so I give a lot of credit to our mental health professionals here at UT Austin that sort of cracked that shell day one and started working with our contact tracing team to help them understand those types of conversations and make it a very safe conversation. Now, it takes a little bit more time to talk to somebody on the phone and make them feel at ease, but it's been all the well yeah. worth it. And so we've had a tremendous success rate in terms of reaching out to people, getting them to call us back, because we take the time to make sure they feel safe and understand what we're doing and we're doing it to help them. We're not doing it to spy. We're not doing it for any other reason, but to make sure that we stem this, this COVID-19 pandemic. Right. It makes a lot of sense. Were there any other uh, initiatives or anything else you wanted to talk about just as far as how innovation has been leveraged? Yeah, I, I think there's a few different dimensions I don't hear enough about. So first of all, let's talk about mental health of the clinicians, your staff, you as a healthcare IT leader, your fellow peers in the C-suite. I spent a lot, a lot of time with my team, and especially in the early days when the news was very dire about what you were hearing in New York City and other places, and you know, wheeling in 18 wheelers that had refrigerators in it to carry out the bodies of the people that were passing mm -hmm. in the hospitals. It was a very traumatic time. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal ran a great article that featured our chair of psychology, Dr. Nemiroff, 
who was actually speaking to the PTSD syndrome-like effect that COVID-19 has had on this country as a whole. And sure enough, one of the things that we did early on that's been recognized and awarded now has been the fact that we stood up a mental health hotline for our healthcare workers in the early days. And this was an ability that was staffed by our social workers and mental health therapists for anybody that's working the COVID-19 response to call in and say, man, I'm just, I'm feeling pressed against the wall. This is important. Those types of initiatives pay tremendous dividends down the road, especially now that we're in month, what, five, six of this, of this pandemic now, because these are the same clinicians on the front lines every single day, day in, day out, being exposed. And as I said earlier, going home then to their families and loved ones. And so it's inevitable that the mental toll that COVID-19 takes on people is tremendous. And you have to do things like having those outlets and those, those outreach efforts to make sure people feel good. Let's speak about IT for a second. So my IT team, you know, here I am in the office because Hoden and my team is here every single day, right? I can't exactly have people servicing devices from home. It's almost impossible. But a large portion of my team is home. But my personal philosophy is if any of my team is here, I'm here regardless. So I've been here every single day. So for the people on site, particularly every day going in, going out, the hospitals, the clinics and whatnot, there's a natural concern. There's a natural fear factor. There's a natural understanding. But you as an IT leader can spend time with them saying, look, I've got your back. Let's run a ticket together. Let's run an issue together. Let's go talk to the clinicians together. It's going to be safe. It's going to be secure. And we can trust you know, our EVS team and whatnot that everything is clean as best we can possibly do it. And so those are the types of activities and actions you have to do, not just from a macro perspective of your health system, but also understanding you know, what is the ethos of your IT team? How are they doing? Because when UT Austin comes and asks us to set up a contact tracing system and processes and whatnot to facilitate tens of thousands of students coming back to campus and the return of Longhorn football, which here in Texas is everything, then you have to make sure your team is on their A game and they're feeling confident and they're feeling good. And that's incumbent on all of us to do that. The other thing I would say that's important in terms of an innovative factor is not just putting telemedicine out there for telemedicine's sake, but allowing your physicians and your clinicians to experiment and innovate, even leveraging telemedicine tools. If you talk to some of your top leaders, top clinical leaders in your health system, they're constantly figuring out, how can I do this better on the EMR? How can I do this better in a physical practice? Can I move my chairs in my waiting room here? Can I do this better here? That's just the nature of a clinician. They want to see patients better, faster, cheaper, smarter. That's just the nature of it, right? So on telemedicine, a lot of the legacy telemedicine platforms can be very, very cumbersome and it can be very difficult to innovate yeah. on. But you can give them telemedicine type tools, right? Maybe leveraging some more consumer telemedicine tools to let them play, let them innovate. In our case, we're big believers in an integrated practice unit model where we have IPUs for MSK, which is musculoskeletal, um, basically orthopedics. They were able to figure out how to do a virtual care team model by creating waiting rooms, uh, leveraging our telemedicine product so that people could see a multidisciplinary care team virtually. That wasn't something out of the oh, box that came with instructions. They figured it out. Right. Our physicians yeah. figured it out, our surgeons figured it out. And I was like, that's awesome. Let's adopt it. That's fantastic. Great job. High fives. It makes them feel bought in. So telemedicine isn't just a tool to say, hey, let's have Aaron and Kate chat. It's actually a tool that can be shaped and molded like a piece of clay. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's been interesting to see a lot of physicians and care providers just really take ownership of this, like you said, and, and make it their own when you know, a year ago, <laughs> people wouldn't have predicted that, that to happen. 
That's true. And, and I mean, a lot of folks say it's about reimbursement and it's a lot of those types of things which shape the behaviors of the hospital. I can appreciate that. And I actually agree with that to a large extent, but I also think it's comfort factor, right? When you're Mm -hmm. so comfortable doing something every single day to suddenly move someone's cheese, it's a very difficult proposition until you're absolutely forced to, you know, for, for life and death purposes. Now that we've seen this, I'll give you a specific example. We actually measure our net promoter score of every single patient that comes in and out of our facilities. Now, of course, HCAPs and others are important, but NPS gives us a quick way to read us to, hey, what's your bugaboo, right? What's going on? What's good? What's bad? And you know, what would you, would you recommend a friend basically to come here to UT Health Austin? And the feedback we get is fantastic. We're constantly getting NPSs in the mid to high 80s you know, before COVID. Now, after COVID, we're still doing NPS, so we're still doing net promoter score sampling on every single encounter we're doing telemedicine and virtualized, but the NPS is now in the 90s. Why? Because people no longer have to worry about fighting for parking in downtown Austin. People don't have to worry about traffic. People don't have to worry about, oh, man, I'm running five minutes late because there was an accident on the interstate. All those issues are kind of put by the wayside. So the consumer adoption has been fantastic because now they realize, hey, why wasn't I doing this before, right? What's been that? What's been the bugger right. here? So we're going to shift back to some model at some point of in between. We'll never put the genie back in the bottle, but we will definitely sort of revert back to some of the old behaviors. But I don't think you're ever going to put aside the consumer adoption or the uptick of uh, telemedicine or remote patient monitoring. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.